0: This
1: season, we've been digging deep into the sports world to bring a little color to the proceedings. This week, we have two stories worlds apart. Brenda Villa grew up in Los Angeles, the daughter of Mexican immigrants. She would quickly discover a sport not normally dominated by Latina athletes. She would eventually win gold for Team USA's water polo team. For Bernardo Ruiz, the mission is to tell stories, often through the lens of his documentaries. His latest is an ESPN film that highlights the Tarumara of Mexico, finally telling their whole story. This is in Fuego. If you like these types of stories, be sure to give a like or a follow. It goes a long way to supporting our mission, which is telling stories that deserve the spotlight, much like the one you're about to hear. One of the best Olympic water polo players to ever jump into the pool grew up in Commerce, an area in Los Angeles with just under 13,000 citizens. But Commerce offered a wealth of opportunities thanks to forward-thinking city council members, Villa grew up near one of the city's community centers and had access to swimming lessons and an introduction to a sport that would change her life.
2: You can't really tell the Brenevea story without mentioning the City of Commerce. And the City of Commerce um, is incredibly fortunate to have the business revenue um, of like the Commerce Casino, of the Citadel outlets, and... These council members back in the '70s decided that they would invest in the youth and that they would make um, their parks and rec department very vibrant and um, keep it low cost to their residents. Mm-hmm. So my parents happen to, you know, make their home in Commerce. Um, there is a beautiful swimming pool, low cost swim lessons, and my mom, who um, was is the oldest of eleven um you know never played sports um grew up in Tecaliplan Jalisco there isn't water too close so was never comfortable in the water she wanted her children to learn to swim and be comfortable because in California we have a lot of access to beaches and and water um it's not always um accessible in terms of price but but it is there right so she wanted us to learn to swim so we got into the swim lessons and then they offered a free swim team so we joined the swim team and then my older brother um discovered water polo which they offered also offered there and started playing water polo and my mom was a little hesitant with that because it was co-ed and here you have like a mom um and to have her daughter in a swimsuit playing, you know, co ed polo, just it wasn't her idea of what she imagined her daughter to be doing, I think. And I think some of it is cultural, right? And some of it is her not having experience in sports. So for a couple years, two years, I kind of wore her down and she finally let me try waterfall. And then she saw that I enjoyed it. She saw that um, it was easy to have my brother and I in the same thing. So I think she kind of just went with it. And I secretly always say, like, I think she enjoyed the fact that I was just as good as, as the boys that I played with. Right. So she's like, Hey, my daughter, you know, is excelling in this. Why not? So that's kind of how my intro to, to aquatics um, was. And, and it is unique because um, as I have found through my journey in aquatics is that it's, there's a lot of barriers for, for minorities and um under-resourced communities.
1: And I definitely want to talk about that and also may, you know a lot about the safety issue because you know underrepresented communities not knowing how to swim that's dangerous. Um but a little bit you know what was the hesitancy from your mom was it just more the sports the physicality of the sport um and you know, I guess yeah. What was what was the hesitancy yeah, I, on that part?
2: I think some of it is it, it was physical. It was a contact sport, and for her, she never played sports, right? So, mm-hmm. were girls um, at home? Like she helped raise some of her younger siblings. So, her the roles in her mind of what um, daughters did was different. So it was shifting here. So I think she was kind of in an awkward place of, oh, do I hold on to what? I had to do growing up? Or do I kind of let my daughter um, try new things? And I'm, I'm always grateful that she kind of, and I always say that she kind of gave me these wings and let me just go with it. She was never like, no, don't do that. I mean, there were times where there was tension in our relationship, but she never said no. She was always like, okay, as long as your schoolwork's done, you can, you can do anything you want.
1: And you know, you went to Stanford. Um, you know, I won't hold that against you. I'm, I'm, I'm an alum of. Uh, of I went to UC Berkeley, so, um,
2: <laughs> so
1: it's okay, I guess. But um, you know, going to a prestigious university. What, what did mom and dad do for for work um, growing up? Was academics always important to you? Um, what was childhood like?
2: Yeah. So my mom's a seamstress. Mm-hmm. My dad worked in the garment industry, and that's, um, I won't say typical, but. Those are the some of the jobs that are available in you know in Los Angeles, um, and you know.
1: And when did they come like,
2: over? Um, in the seventies. In the seventies, they, they immigrated in the seventies. They actually met here in the U.S., and it's a it's a funny story that I share, and I I always say like, well, we're not related, but through their own cousins they met. So my mom came over, and and I'm related to these cousins by both by both parents so it's always like a weird awkward conversation well but my
1: mom ma- my my wife has that with her family too i think it's just prevalent of like people come from you know no. our both of our families are from zacateca so like you know it's just you know yeah exactly exactly right
2: so it was like okay my and it was like my mom was taking care of her cousin's oldest daughter right yeah. and then my dad would come visit his cousin and that's how they they met so it's it's an interesting story which is which is great. Um, and we're lucky that we lived in the city of, of commerce because they, they both worked. It wasn't, they didn't make a lot. Right. And, and aquatics is very expensive. So, um, we were able to go down this journey in aquatics because the city of commerce sponsored so much. Mm-hmm. So here they are. And I think, so I always think about my parents never owned their home. Um, and kind of one of the American dreams, right, is, you know, you own your home with like a white picket fence. And I think for them, for many years, they felt that if they moved away where there was an opportunity to buy a home, they would lose the opportunity to, to this access they've gained into aquatics for their kids. And they realized how much um, I was excelling in it. So in the back of my head, I I always wonder and I always think about, about that. But... Um, I'm grateful that the city of commerce was able to always provide that sponsorship of sports because it wasn't something my parents had to worry about. Um, they always found a way to get to games, right? They both working these jobs that don't give you paid time off. You don't get vacation. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how they did it now that I'm a mom in the workforce, like trying to figure things out. And as I get older, it's just like this, this, the, the, the love and the gratitude I have for them just continues to grow as I fully understand everything they did for their family.
1: Yeah, no, that's powerful. And I guess getting into the work, you know, once you retired um, a gold medalist, you know, going out on top, um, you didn't stop. You know, you you kept going, um, and now you lead up uh, the Waterpolo's Equity Foundation. Um, talk a little bit about that before we go into the Brenda Villa Foundation. Um, what is, what is the water polo racial equity and reform task force? What's its mission and, and what are the work, I guess, some of the work that you guys are doing now?
2: You know, we, so because I grew up in commerce, um, and the opportunities that I received through that and the lens that it gave me, I, I always knew that I wanted to, to give back. I never knew how I would do that or what it looked like. And, um, you say it's unfortunate, but I say I was fortunate to go to Stanford (laughs) and I have my, my college coach, who's a mentor of mine. And at Stanford, we would, um, do tutoring in East Palo Alto. And that's probably when I felt the most at home, right. Is going into the East Palo Alto community, like at Stanford back then, right. It was a bubble, And I was always like, where do I find my people? Like, who can really understand me? Like, I did have a water polo team that was very supportive and inclusive, but, you know, there were some things we didn't have conversations about, right? So um, that was always in my head. And as I, you know, took time to play on an Olympic team and came back, like, I always had these conversations with my coach. And as I was graduating, you know, we still had these conversations. And then as I was about to retire and I wanted to to think about my next steps, he's always he was always someone that I had conversations with. And he was like, Well, you always talk about creating more opportunities, um, like you had in commerce. Like, why don't we think about what that would look like up here? Mm-hmm. So then, you know, before the Brenda Via Foundation, there was Project 2020. So it gave me a sense of purpose after after um retiring. It gave me a purpose that I needed because to retire and to move on from that identity of being like, you know, a top water polo player forever. And now having to shift to something new was really hard. And I'm glad that I was able to do it, not in my city, right? Like going back home because I would have, <laughs> I would have had to answer so many questions like, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? And I really needed that time to, to kind of figure it out and, and starting the project 2020 and coming up North kind of really gave me that. Um, so then that project started and then it's been happening for years. Then I started working out of school and then just interest started to just intersect and it was really great. And then I realized that programming takes a lot of time. And then as I got married, had kids, it's just, okay, what does this look like now? So then now fast forward to last spring and the reckoning that this country is coming to. Right. Um, I was doing these events for the school that I work at, Castilea. And, you know, last year I was the equity education coordinator. This year I'm the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm immersed in this at school. And then I was thinking, like, well, what are we doing at polo? Like, what's happening there? And then it really made me reflect upon my experience as a um, Mexican-American in a, in a white affluent sport. And then it made me think about the experiences my brothers had, which were slightly different than mine. Um, I always had my identifiers, right? as gender was always one. Like I played on the boys, all boys high school team. So like my gender always led for me and then maybe my race and ethnicity. And then I think for them, it was their race and ethnicity. So all of this was in my mind. Like, what are we doing? Is it really inclusive? Like what are younger players thinking? Like I was – you know, at the top of of the pyramid, if you want to say that. So was did I have blinders on? Did I maybe not think about some experiences that were happening? So then, it was like conversations that I was having with a lot of past players, current players, and I'm like, there needs to be something that that we could do. We could we could do better. So then it was just a matter of I'm on the board of USA Water It was a matter of having conversations with the CEO and others, and everyone really being on the same game plan it's like yes we could do better yes it could be more inclusive so then that's how this task force was created and really it's about training resources it's about um how do we grow the sport and has it not grown because we're not inclusive so really diving in Mm -hmm. and kind of doing like a checklist of things that can be better can we review our code of conduct can we um can we partner with communities that have Um, programs that exist and help them continue so you know it so far it's it's been great to to be a to co-chair this with with John Abdu who's a high performance director of USA Waterfall um, because we've been able to to create this team Mm -hmm. of different stakeholders and it's really we had a meeting last night and it's really empowering to be on a zoom call with all of these people that are That have the same goals and passion and just having us work through everything so you know this work continues till another maybe six months so we're hoping that we could really make some great um, recommendations to help our sport just become more inclusive
1: Ever since I started out, people have been asking me for advice on all kinds of things. But in covering sports, it's usually about who's going to win and what team they should bet on. You got the Patriots or 49ers this week, Bucks or Raiders. Well, the best piece of advice I can give to anyone is where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. It's why I always tell people to visit my bookie. They've got deposit matches, free bets, and huge cash prize contests for you to take advantage of all season long. And if all action? Check. College ball? Check. Plus, they have a mobile-friendly website and top-of-the-line customer service, making their platform a one-stop shop for all your betting needs. MyBookie offers action on everything from championship futures to NFL in-game live betting, making sure you're covered every step of the way. And congrats if you're one of the ones to cash in on the generous early season odds on the Lakers to win the NBA championship. Sign up at MyBookie today. And when you do, use our promo code Fuego to claim a halfway match on your deposit. If you put in $200, they'll spot you another $100 to play with. It's a bonus designed to give you a little help and a head start on your winning season. That's promo code Fuego. That's Fuego. F-U-E-G-O. So you can claim your bonus when you make your deposit. Stacked UFC cards, presidential prop bets, all the major sports and more await you. Sign up today to begin your winning season exclusively at MyBookie. And so, like you were saying, oh, you kind of over the next few months, it's kind of brainstorming and bringing things to the table that can be done to make it more inclusive. So, is is there anything, I guess, that you can share of ideas that that are already kind of in the works, or, or more generally, I guess might be the question is what can be done, um, you know, from your own perspective of getting kids of color into the pool, not just into the pool, but, you know, into the, into the sport of water polo. Um, you know, in my own experience, you know, I know the water polo team definitely looked a certain way in my high school. Um, what can be done, I guess?
2: Well, some of it is education and providing resources, right? It's, um, how do we help coaches engage to make it an inclusive team? Um, I think sometimes we have seen that the kids might try out for water polo, but maybe they don't stay. So it's like, how do we retain them? And then how do we strategically partner with programs that already exist? Um, Because we're also like a smaller NGB compared to other like track and field or maybe some other sports, right? So it's like, how can we partner in ways where we bring the resources to existing programs and then help them um, come up with a plan to keep the kids um, that – we want to make sure our water safe stay in the sport, or maybe they don't stay with water polo, but at least they're water safe, right? So it's like, how do we get more kids water safe? So I think a lot of that is partnering. So collecting data. So like we have all these subgroups. So one subgroup is research. So how do we um, evaluate how we're doing and where we can improve? And then it's coming up with educational materials and who needs to get educated? Everyone, board members, coaches, administrators, you know, members so that we all know what it is or even how do you deal with like a microaggression, right? Or how is there a grievance? Like, how do we make sure that if you are staying in the sport you feel like we have your back?
1: Brenda Villa's mission isn't just about bringing diversity to water polo, it's about making all children water safe. The numbers are startling. According to her foundation's website, under-resourced communities account for 90% of drownings worldwide. There has to be a concerted effort to get children of color trained for the pool. Introductions to swimming or water polo isn't just about enriching the sport, it's about saving lives.
2: Because there, there are mistakes that happen, there are things that happen, so how do we make sure you feel protected and safe? So these are all things that are not necessarily new, right? But I think um, that evaluation piece is so important. So we know the best strategy for our sport and where maybe our blind spots are.
1: And then kind of expounding on the more general, you know, the Brenda Villa Foundation. Um, Tell our readers, you know, a little bit about that, you know, um, know, what what the mission is for that, but also touch upon the safety issue. Because like you said, growing up in LA, there's beaches, there's pools. And I think there's, um, a discrepancy or not discrepancy, but I think more often than not, it's, it's underrepresented communities that don't know how to swim and there's the drownings, there's the health issue and it's bigger than, you know, the important part is getting them in the pool and and getting them accustomed and, 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 uh, acclimated to water polo and all this great stuff, but it's really a safety issue too, right?
2: Yes. And really, so I, I briefly mentioned like project 2020 and how it's, for me, it's always been about giving back and making sure that kids that looked like me that maybe grew up in the same circumstances as me had this opportunity of access to to aquatics because i know that the city of commerce gave me that access and i was able to take um every opportunity that i got and like run with it um so now the brenda and that was we did let like we focused on lessons and programming and, and a team and now the shift is it's like it's a new mission we say new mission new name right um and now it's like, how do we partner? How do we give grants and scholarships to other organizations to help them make sure that all these kids are water safe? Mm-hmm. So it just is shifted from how do we have a bigger impact across uh, maybe the US um, in different areas? Because before it was very local here to the um, Bay Area and we were trying to make you know a bigger impact here. But what we realized is we also have like, not institutional knowledge, but knowledge of how to start programs, right? So how do we leverage that with organizations that are starting or how do we go and be a voice or a presence for maybe other programs that need more support? Like, would it help them that, you know, this Olympic gold medalist comes and speaks to your city council that speaks to your, to any group to help you get support. So, you know, my co-founders, um, played water polo. They happen to also have attended Stanford, but we have a lot of coaching knowledge and a lot of knowledge in the sport. So we want to make sure that we can leverage that. And it is about just getting everyone water safe, right? Like at the end of the day, if you become an Olympic uh, water polo player, swimmer, like that's the bonus, right? But at the minimum, it's like, are you water safe? Are you comfortable? We were all we all had that access and that safety around rotter. So we just want to make sure that we can um, help with that. I would say even crisis, right? You look at the numbers and they're, they're mind blowing. And it's like, how do we help in this area that needs help? Mm -hmm. And how do we bring our knowledge to it?
1: And one of the last things too is, you know, it's the 20th anniversary of women in, you know, water polo, the U.S. Olympics and, to me, I'm like, that's great. But then it's astounding. that it's, it's 20 years, you know, it seems like it's been around forever, but no women's water polo was a- added fairly recently. Um, what can be done from, you know, representation part of just women in sports too? Um, and second to that is what should we be on the lookout going into 2021? As far as, you know, water polo players, we should be, you know, looking at, um, and, and get excited about, you know, well,
2: I know you, I think of 20 years and it seems like that was so long ago, but if you put it, you know, in a huge historical context, it's not that long. Mm-hmm. I think that title nine has really helped water pole. Uh, I think that um, the international Olympic committee and like FINA are making some strides in that we in London there was eight women's teams at the Olympics and 12 men's teams. Now for Tokyo, I believe it'll be um, they've upped it to ten women's teams and, and um, 10 men's teams, but it's still not equitable, right? Like so well, there's still some things that, that could be done that I think ultimately just help grow the sport and women opportunity for women's everywhere, right? Like if 12 teams could compete, that means that, you know, maybe more funding is happening for more countries across the world. So um, there's still some stuff to be done. I think for me, it's like, I wanna be present. I also serve on like um, UANA, which is an organization for the Americas and aquatics. And for me, it's like, I'm a, especially for the Americas, right? Like I speak Spanish, I understand the culture. So it's like, how can I help? So for me, it's like, as a player, I always like, I complained about things that that I didn't know, right? Like, why is this so important? Why is that so important? They should be focusing on the athletes and what's happening. So now it's like, okay, you're not an athlete, but how do you leverage your experiences? And then how do you get, I always say the dark side, right? The administrative side and, and try to make change with your experiences. So for me, a lot of it now is like, I want to remain visible so that I can help move us in a direction um, where the athlete voice is considered and maybe the women's voice is considered. And then the women of color's voice is considered because on a lot of these committees, a lot of these boards, it's it's a lot of male, and then there's a lot of white males. So it's like, how do we get just different perspective in there? So um, I think having more of that, like more female coaches, um just it'll help the sport in general and then i think your next question was about like who to watch Mm. um in tokyo i mean the women's team and i mean i'm biased right like (laughs) my favorite team is the usa women's water polo team and they have just dominated um since since rio and I think, what was it, they had like a 70-game winning streak. And, you know, Maggie Steffens is their captain. Um, Ashley Johnson is, you know, they're both the two top best players in the world. And they happen to be on Team USA, but, but they are. And just watching that whole team and how they move so fluidly and just – I'm always in awe of watching them, and I'm always like, oh my goodness, like, could I be competing with them? I don't know, but they are really good, and it's so great to see both of them, like, Ashley now, it seems, has, you know, has come into her own and has become a voice, you know, she's the first um, African, black woman to, to make a, an Olympic team, so it's one of those where do we grow up to become role models? you know we play a sport we love it and then we step on this platform and sometimes we then become role models without even knowing it mm-hmm. so it, it's been really great to see her embrace that role and um and use her platform and then maggie steffens is a phenomenal person you know and her dad's puerto rican so she definitely you know we have these great conversations and um I always have a great conversation with the Stephens family, so it's it's great to see them. They're amazing. The whole team's amazing. Um, I am biased, but their record speaks for themselves. It speaks for itself.
1: And it's you know it's it's a matter too of you know you playing in four Olympics and these girls watched you in two thousand eight, two thousand twelve. You know, um, it's just something that's a self fulfilling. You know, it's it's a great way of self fulfilling prophecy of girls saw you playing, saw your, your teams playing. And now that's paying off all these great, you know, um, winning gold medal in 2016. And um, so it's nice to see. Um, I guess, lastly, what's something you miss about water polo or, you know, if you have a um, a young, you know, boy or girl here, that's like, you know, why water polo? You know, what's great about it? You know, what do you miss about it? Um, yeah.
2: You know, I miss having, 13 people that are committed to one goal and like looking left and right and knowing that if I'm having a horrible day, they have my back. If I'm having a horrible game, they've got me. And knowing that together we can do bigger things. Um, I think specifically water pole, it's just this, it's so competitive. It's so tough. It's in a different element. And I think I like that layer of, of toughness that it takes right like um not it's just another layer right like you can walk you can run um but in the water it's different so I like that uniqueness of it and it's just so tough and people are like someone's holding you yeah and then they'll ask are you touching the bottom? No I'm not touching the bottom. So I love that extra layer of toughness and I really think that it makes you this resilient person. I think um, you have to work as a unit. So it's taught me so many life skills and I think a lot of sports do, but I, I do think that the added layer of, of water um, adds to the toughness of it.
1: Perspective is a hard thing to come by. You can read a whole book and come away with just a sliver of the entire story. Bernardo Ruiz is the director of 30 for 30's new Infinite Race documentary. It's an immersive and encompassing look at the Talmada who live in the canyons of Chihuahua, Mexico. The tale might be familiar to many of you who read Christopher McDougall's Born to Run. It's an entertaining journey with this indigenous group famed for their ability to run astounding distances. Ruiz was driven to tell more of their story. This proud people are more than their physical feats. They're a tight-knit community dealing with myriad issues. And the gifted director is here to offer more of a spotlight to that story. Uh, Bernardo, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, I wanted to, to thank you for the film. It was definitely eye-opening. Um, you know, I read the book, Born to Run, but this was um, a needed you know, side of the story. Um, you know, delving deep, but I want to talk about, you know, when did you come into the picture? Um, I know this, this, this story takes place over a wide swath of time. Um, So how did, how did infinite race come to be? How did, how did that unfold?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, You know, I had always wanted to make a running movie of some kind when I was a teenager, I had seen uh, a film called the loneliness of the long distance runner. It's a British movie, black and white. You know, I saw it when I was 17 on cable. And it always stuck with me. I, at the time, I thought it was such a cool film because you know, it was ostensibly about running, but it was also about a, a kid, um, a British kid in, in reform school. So it was about social issues. So I'd always wanted to make a some film about running. And then, you know, I'm Mexican-American. I've spent a lot of time going back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico. I've done a lot of stories about you know, uh, kind of contemporary Mexico and the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, And a couple of years ago, I read this incredible article in the Texas Monthly called The Drug Runners, which is basically about how the Tarahumara were being caught up and exploited to basically ferry drugs into the U.S. uh, because of their, their, uh, you know, supposed ability to run long distances. And so that, I thought, you know, wow, in this story, I can do two things that I've always wanted to do, which is make a running film, uh, but also talk about um, some of the interesting issues that are happening between the U.S. and Mexico.
1: And jumping off of the Tarahumara, um, they're you know indigenous people that even you know fled the conquistadors into these mountains, and again had these tourists flock to them. Talk about you know I guess the dichotomy between you know american tourists or international tourists coming in to say hey we're going to save you and and these Tatumara who have such a um a passion for their own culture um in the separation of the two where it's 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 complex it's a complex there's complex issues it's not just as cut and dry as hey we're gonna have a race here all the time
0: no i think that that's exactly right and I, i think one thing that we show in the film is you know, some people uh, participate in these ultramarathons for sport and fun, and some people do it to survive.
1: For their annual ultramarathon, running isn't just a sport to the Tatamata. They are running for food vouchers. They're running for corn. A community hit hard by drought is running to maintain their way of life.
0: And um, you know what I what I was interested in doing is going in and documenting the annual ultra marathon, which is this race that happens in, in Urique, Chihuahua. It's in the basin of the famous Copper Canyons. It's a beautiful part of Mexico. Uh, very rugged. It's difficult to get to get there. And you know, as you mentioned, the 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 or, you know we we talked about before the 2010 book uh, Born to Run. Just sparked this enormous interest in long-distance running uh, and ultramarathon running, and then in this place in particular. So what it did is it it brought lots of international runners and tourists. Um, and I think what we try to show in the film is that it's 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 complex. It's not all good and bad. I, I you know I don't believe anything is like or well, most things aren't like that in life. But I, I think what what's interesting is um, you see in the film in 2015 there was this big event when uh there was basically cartel violence it's a, it's a, a zone it's an area that's very well known for its presence of organized crime both for trafficking and for illegal logging and other um you know other other basically shadow businesses and in 2015 the the race that organizers had planned um was canceled as a result of this um t- killings uh, um, related to narco-violence and so the american organizers of the race had to cancel the race the local Mexican folks who organized it felt like, well, who are the gringos to cancel this race? And in the middle of all this, the Taramano were saying, wait a second, we, we need to run because when we run, we get these vouchers, which allows us to feed our family. So to me, that was a fascinating moment. It's this crisis. It lay, lays bare kind of all the the different perspectives that people have, the inequalities that are there. And that, you know, that to me is really what's at the heart of the film is how people look at things very differently based on where they come from.
1: And if you could go into depth, I know you just touched on it right now, is kind of the difficulties uh, that the Tarumara are, are, are facing. Um, you know, you had a wonderful documentary, Reportero, in 2012, um, talking about the attacks on the press. The Tarumara have, have a violent life as well. Um, and as you said, they're running for vouchers. You know, it's, it's the food, the nutrition, the violence. Um, explain a little bit about their plight and, um, and what they face.
0: you you talked about it at the beginning which is that they have a very long history of resistance so you know uh, according to you know different accounts and certainly to members of the community who studied their own history as well you know they they fled the the spanish conquistadores and fled to a very remote and and pretty inhospitable part of the copper canyons uh, where it's difficult to grow things it's difficult to survive also where uh, communities are separated by very long distances so, I mean, that is one aspect of Tarahumara culture that we document a little bit in the film and that where, you know, members of the community tell us as well is that this is, you know, part of the, their running ability comes less from the fact that they're quote unquote super athletes as, you know, born to run and others have posited, but rather that it's just about a, a lifestyle of constant motion, of, of, of being on your feet all the time, walking and running long distances. But, you know, in terms of their history, it's it's been a a longstanding history of resistance, um, neglect from you know, governments on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. More recently, the intrusion of cartels and organized crime groups who've either exploited them for uh, labor to ferry drugs into the U.S., which uh, you know my colleague Ryan Goldberg, who wrote the Texas Monthly article, uh, The Drug Runners, documents so well, and we touch on in the film, um, and then, but also, uh, you know, you have organized crime groups taking ancestral lands or, you know, territories from the Tarahumara, so pushing them further and further into less hospitable lands. Um, the, the, probably the biggest uh, threat they face at this moment is uh, climate change and, and droughts. Uh, apparently this year was an even worse year for, for drought. So as you point out, the races have become this way for um, runners in the community and even those who don't run but just simply want the vouchers. It's become a way for people to survive to run for these vouchers so they can get corn and other basic goods in order to survive.
1: But it's also a community, and I think it's it's quite evident in the documentary. They're a close knit community. I mean, even in two thousand fifteen, when they're not running, you know, um, and then they end up running, um, they're all together. Um, they're they're hey, we're going to run together as a family. Um, you know, that seems like just kind of the. The great aspect of 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 their life is is just how close they are as a community
0: i I think that's right i think there's um there is uh a degree of unity that you see among the members of the community and you know to me um the activist and runner Irma Chavez, who you see in the film you know her her voice really stands out as someone who you know she points out that this is uh you know the running goes above and beyond a marathon an ultra marathon that for her. And, and members of our community, this is about a kind of um, a tradition that will never die. This is a tradition that is it, it has gone on since, you know, before the Spanish arrived, since before the tourists arrived, since before the narcos arrived, and that they'll continue to do this above and beyond uh, any, you know, any outsiders uh, coming in. And I think that is a, it's a, it's a powerful, um, it's a powerful idea. I also think it's, um, you know, it, it is an example of something uh, you know and th- these are difficult times. I think for a lot of people you you see an example of, of genuine resilience and resistance in this community, and I think uh, I, I, that that to me is something uh, pretty special.
1: I understand you love the book Born to Run. So did I. I'm sure you looked up whatever science you could find to shoehorn in the need to run barefoot around New York City as well. But it's kind of a slap in the face to the Tarumata because these are people who would gladly rock those $200 Nikes, the ones that feel like clouds on your feet if they could just afford to do so. The, the, the more, uh, a little bit of levity towards the end of the, the, the well, I mean, you have who, who's who's talking about the shoes you know that's a big part of born to run um it sparks so many people running around new york city la you know with no shoes on and and the the shoes with your you know put your toes in like fingers like gloves um and as as you know people in the, in the documentary were saying w- wouldn't you think we would wear you know the 200 dollar nike's if we could um so what was that like i, I know cuz that was such a huge part of born to run and the aftermath is is people running around barefoot um but it it's kind of um it's a slap in the face a little bit for, for the Talmata, um to say, Hey, we're going to run barefoot, you know?
0: Um, I really appreciate you asking that question because I think that's um, it's a, as you pointed out when born to run came out a decade ago, it did spark this uh, kind of obsession with uh, minimalist footwear or barefoot running. And, you know, we show some of it, the archival footage in the film, but I, I saw it here in, in New York. You know, you had people running down, you know, uh, concrete sidewalks uh, barefoot, or in Central Park, uh, because that was supposedly better. Um, I, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, you know what's interesting would be interesting is I'd like to show some of this footage to Silvino cubesade this veteran Taromada runner, and I'd like to get his honest reaction. You know, if you know whatever his reaction is, and include it in the film because I think that's fair. It's like a way to talk back to this is the story that the media has US media and international media has been telling about your community and running. And, you know, what do you have to say? So just like any journalist would ask, you know, someone for comment, I felt like that was uh, fair to do in my responsibility to do that. So I showed it to Silvino and his family and I projected it, the footage of American, mainly white American runners uh, running barefoot. And he laughed and then kind of scoffed. And as you point out, he said, you know, uh, what 's wrong with these people you know uh, i 've been running barefoot I ran barefoot because I had to because of poverty, out of necessity uh, if you know why would why would people suffer if they don't have to and I thought to me that was a kind of profound comment and something that points at you know what we talk about now is cultural appropriation it's um, you know it's it's it, they're funny the things that that people uh, you know get that become trendy or become viral sometimes they get disassociated from where they come from, but, um, you know, and I, again, I don't think it, there's anything that's black and white, but I did appreciate his perspective. And I felt like it was illuminating that part of what became a trend is also something that came from poverty.
1: No, it was, it was just, cause I, I, I really enjoyed Born to Run. I really thought the book was great. Um, it, but there was, you know, issues with it, you know, looking at, This indigenous community running and thinking, oh, there must be a reason that they're running barefoot, and not thinking of the, you know, all the endemic issues um, and and why that comes to be. Um, The documentary, more than anything, is kind of an immersive story where it's not just one side of it, Um, it takes you through kind of a whole gamut. Um, Why was that important to you? Um, You know, it's a story that people are familiar with or they think they're familiar with, um, but they don't know the whole story. So telling this in documentary form, um, you know, what was it like? You know, why was it important to you?
0: Yeah, so you know, in terms of, of being immersive, I mean, you know, one thing that I really wanted to do is just give the viewer a sense of what it's like to be there. And also, you know, I, I also think um, it's important to show a range of perspectives, um, that things are complicated, uh, that they're not easy, And I think, um, you know, I'm also not the kind of uh, social issue documentary filmmaker that just wants to bash people over the head. First of all, because I think that's boring if you just unilaterally take one position, but also because I don't, that's not the way I experience life. I think things are complicated. And so as an example, in the 2015 race, when, you know, the race is marred and disrupted by narco violence, and you have very different reactions from the you know, Americans and North American runners and the local Mexicans and then the indigenous community. Everybody has a different take. And I hope what the viewer does is say, oh, I actually kind of get everybody's perspective. It's not, I I don't, it's not a question of right or wrong. It's a question of, this is a tough situation and everybody's bringing who they are to the table. So they're seeing this event very differently. And that to me is what's interesting is, uh, you know, opening people's eyes to those different perspectives so that they can see reality, experience reality in a different way.
1: The Fuego podcast is edited by Dylan Wren. I'm your host, Gabe Zaldivar. If you like the show, you can help support it in a tremendous way by liking, following and subscribing across your favorite streaming services. Give a comment or a five-star rating. With your support, you're helping give some of sports' greatest stories the spotlight they deserve. Next week, we do just that, pulling back the curtain on a rather uplifting sports story you might not know about.